I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Dr. Afton Hassett, a leader in the field of chronic pain and resilience. We dive into managing your chronic pain while still doing the things that you love. Let's talk about it. Okay, awesome. We're back. Now I get why Jer sighs before, before every recording. I, I make fun of Jeremy sometimes for, for, for letting out a big sigh at the very beginning of a recording. But it's often because there's a lot of things going on, and then we finally yeah. get into like being able to just do the thing that we love yep. doing, and which is sit down and talk to people like you, Afton. Exactly, and then we land. And Brian just mentioned it there. We are joined today by Dr. Afton Hassett. You are a doctor in psychology. You are also an associate professor and director of pain and opioid research in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. And you are a principal investigator at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center. You are a leader in the field of chronic pain and resilience. I'm really excited because you've got a new book out. It's called Chronic Pain Reset, and it brings evidence-based strategies from research and academic medical settings directly to people who live with chronic pain. It was published on September 5th, and you, listener, can get it right now on Amazon. It's currently the number one slot on Amazon in the chronic pain category, which is super cool. Congratulations on that. Uh, Afton, I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, highlight all the blind spots that I, that, I, that I have in my introduction of you. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I'm, I'm, I, I love your podcast. I'm delighted to be uh, to be on it. Um, you actually did a great job just yes. summarizing <laughs> where I'm at. Um, I, I am a clinical psychologist, but I am predominantly an academic researcher. So I spend most of my time studying treatments for chronic pain and trying to understand who responds best to what treatment and and what exciting new non pharmacological options there might be out there. Mm-hmm. Afton, I'm, I'm really curious about um, y- your curiosity and interest in pain. We just had, uh, not too long ago, we, we had a conversation um, with a pain doctor who who kind of re- repositioned the way that I think about pain, um, not as like a symptom that we need to treat, but as a disorder itself. And I thought that that was really interesting and, and very quickly sort of became interested and curious about pain and wanted to know more. So I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm curious where your interest in pain started. So it was actually kind of accidental. This is way back when I was in training and I was working with just some really amazing women who had some pretty significant psychiatric illnesses um, who were making tremendous 
progress in our treatment, but every time we seemed to kind of cross a Rubicon, their pain would flare and they couldn't come in to see me. And it was just really a frustrating thing. I didn't really understand, you know, what was kind of this relationship between progress and therapy and just a worsening of pain. And, and I had a, a really great psychology supervisor, a very learned woman, um, Martha Truax, who said, hey, you know, you need to understand more about chronic pain. It really is incredibly complex and incredibly fascinating. And it's and it's a brain condition. You need to know about it. So why don't you go to the University of California at San Diego's medical library and uh, look it up, learn about fibromyalgia, about chronic low back pain, learn about you know inflammatory um, disorders and uh, see what strikes you. And so I, I did just that. And I, uh, in the olden days, we used to go to, actually to medical libraries and push squeaky carts and pull big, huge books <laughs> off the shelves and walk over to the printer and or the uh, copier and, and, and print the uh, the articles and I was hooked I was so fascinated by how pain was so closely tied to emotions and stress and thoughts but yet appeared to be this independent process in the brain so people can have kind of the psychiatric conditions that can make they can, they can worsen their pain but many people don't have psychiatric conditions, but instead um, can influence their pain through how they think and, and, and emotions. And so it, it was just eye-opening for me, and it became um, my quest in life is just to understand more about this, because if we can open up the door to changing how our brain processes pain by thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, oh my gosh, that's like the keys to the kingdom. You know, how, you know, what, what are the, the incredible opportunities we have? And so that's kind of how I landed here. What do you mean by that in terms of like, like people cannot have psychiatric, psychiatric conditions, but still experience pain and have control over that? Like, what, what does that mean? So for a long time, it feels like science was mired in this idea that chronic pain really was just psychiatric conditions expressing itself in a different way. And our understanding about the science of pain is it couldn't be further from the truth. That's what that is. It just so happens that we do see a lot of depression, anxiety, and other conditions layered on top of chronic pain because living with chronic pain stinks. And it can be incredibly disruptive to people's lives and and developing, um, you know, psychological um, distress and rea reaction to it is like normal. So that was the first thing. And then the second piece of it is that chronic pain resides in the brain. So we understand that conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic low back pain very frequently um, damage from the body somewhere is not causing the pain. The pain is generated almost in, in a whole, in some cases, by the brain, by the brain mapping the body and either producing the experience of pain or amplifying any, any stimuli that might be out there in the body. So um, it's really a remarkable, it's a really remarkable development. It's, and it's, it's now referred to internationally really more as nosoplastic pain, meaning that Noci, the, the feeling of pain, and plastic, the plasticity of the brain, that the brain is changing, it's remodeling, and that is what accounts for the experience of excessive pain. It sounds it's it sounds really wild to put it that way because it almost feels it feels sort of like when I hear you say that, I think almost like I'm really hopeful on one hand because I'm like, oh, well, if it just is generated by the brain, then like, you know, then I feel like maybe if we could change the way that we think, then maybe we could 
we could remedy that. But then also at the other time, on the other hand, it feels like hopeless in the same sense that like, if the brain is just creating this and there's not really like some source that we can identify, then like it almost feels impossible to, to, to remedy it. And why is time. Brian wrong about that? And so, yeah, <laughs> like, like, how do you think about that? Like how, 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 what does the science show? Oh, Ryan, that, that's a great question because it's like, you know, if this kind of haplessly help happens to people, you know, what do you do? To us, it feels like an opportunity because we see that the areas of the brain that process the experience of pain or process pain, those networks and those areas of the brain largely overlap with the same areas that um, process our thoughts and our emotions. And it gives us the door to how when we're frightened and angry and um, and incredibly stressed, our pain feels so much worse. But when we're joyful and we're really engaged in something that we love, we might not even experience pain for those few moments when we're kind of in our totally incredibly distracted or joyful or flow state. So to me, that opens up such a big door. And there are approaches to treating chronic pain now that really capitalize on this pretty much purely brain generated pain that if we open the right door, the pain literally goes away. And this is for people who have had pain for decades and it, with the right approach and the right um, and, and, and the right set of circumstances, pain is incredibly alleviated. And, and, and the therapeutic intervention is called um, pain reprocessing therapy. And for some people, it really is a miracle. To, to come back to like what you were saying at the beginning about like the things that you were seeing in your in your patients and then going off and doing this research and you know you mentioned that like they were getting to this place where then you know they make progress in their in their therapy but then would like start to experience more intense pain and and it would be debilitating how does that um like how how did this new understanding that you were coming to explain that experience that your patients were going through so the way that that I, I conceptualize that is that um, one of the manifestations of kind of nosoplastic pain is in the context of extreme stress, unacceptable emotions, huge conflict, incredible fear that absolutely almost sends the pain into fire. And so that to me was what was happening, that I was working with these women. Many of them were trauma survivors. And as we got closer to this thing that they had been guarding for so long, it just became so overwhelming for them. I think that's kind of what was going on. Again, I didn't have even have the language then to understand mm -hmm. what's going on, but now 20 years later, it does make more sense in the context of two decades of pain research. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, <clears throat> it's very fascinating to, to have this conversation um, with you because you've done the research and in particular because of a very common thing that we have heard in speaking with a number of people who live with chronic pain, um, you know, um, many, many, many times, many times as a result of, uh, as a result of uh, treatment for whether it was a cancer or whether it was a surgery or something like that. Um, and, and where they commonly end up in front of a doctor who says, it's in your head Ugh. as mm -hmm. if that is the solution. The solution yeah. is, is for them to just know that it's in their head. And I've always heard that and gone, okay, 
then then so what? then so what? <laughs> so so then how do we fix the issue with it being in my head? Because like because it almost seems like from the medical from like the from the medical community like the like the clinical setting, it's almost like it's in your head. So that's that. Go away. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like it's in so your head. Like, so it's not real. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That it's not real. That it's not actually there because it's quote in your head. What is? I mean, I think the the problem is obvious. But from your perspective, what are your what's your thought on that? Uh, on that, <laughs> I think about that a lot because it drives me crazy. Um, so, when a physician is dismissive and says your pain is in your head, they're telling you go away, go see a psychiatrist. This is depression or something I'm not interested in. You know, don't waste my physician very important time. That is frequently what's happening. What we understand and working with some of the most remarkable neuroscientists in the field, in our center, as well as across the country, we collaborate with neuroscientists that are all working across the country and across the world. And we're coming to this incredible understanding that it's in the brain. And and we know that, and we've understood this for for years. When we think about the process of... um, Phantom limb pain, which I think, which I think is a great example. I think we've all heard of it. Somebody has a, a leg amputation, and yet for years struggles with incredible pain sensations in the leg that is no longer there. We understand that to be because of the way that the, the body is mapped in the brain. That still exists to the brain. The brain doesn't know anything different. It knows that it, it thinks it's there, and mm-hmm. it's generating pain in that area. It, it, that, I think that's a really strong example of how that that person's pain, the person with phantom limb pain, that is not in his head. That He's not making that up. That's not a psychiatric manifestation. That is the brain detecting and generating pain. And that process isn't entirely different as to what can happen in many conditions that, um, that we are considered nosoplastic. Mm-hmm. So, so what is, the, what, what is, what is some of the... Um, neuroscience and psychology behind and this is very fascinating to me the the connection of um where the pain is coming from in the brain and how that intersects with like emotions thoughts and emotions mm-hmm. um and the experience that the, the uh you know experiences that are uh, maybe have, how pain is exacerbated under under uh, under suboptimal circumstances and mm-hmm. maybe alleviated in in experiences of joy or happiness or fulfillment. Yeah. It, it, so you know the like I said before that the areas of the brain really largely overlap. You know we we used to kind of think that one area of the brain did one thing and another area of the brain did another thing and another area did that. And what we've since learned is oh my gosh, there's so much interconnectivity, and there's these very very established networks that are important to our our day to day functioning to to our detection of, of of the environment to how we process internal and external stimuli and these networks all kind of overlie and they also overlie with the networks that process pain and emotion I'm sorry the emotion and thoughts and so when we activate thoughts that are like, oh my gosh, this is the worst day of my life. I am absolutely freaking out. I can't stand it anymore. That activates an emotion. You know, usually that's fear or anger or or anxiety. And that activation throughout the brain 
starts to co-activate the other networks as well, right? So everything starts working together. In contrast, when we think or, or we meditate or we, you know, we're very mindful and we're just kind of in a very good, calm state and our emotions are just not even necessarily blissful, but just pleasant or neutral, those that co-activation is less prominent. So the pain just kind of keeps motoring along. And most people with chronic pain can really say, oh my gosh, stress like my watch <laughs> will make my pain worse. I, I can just say, I can set it to it because it's so powerful. And again, it's just because so many of these areas are over are overlapping, but that tells us too, you know, we, we've got a door now. So if we do things that decrease our stress, that help us become more calm, that increase our positive emotions, we are much more likely to dampen down that experience of pain and lead lives that are more interesting and enjoyable. And the more we do that, the more activity we get in our lives that is fun and interesting and enjoyable. Again, all that kind of compounds. And the yeah. other the other thing that comes from that too, the, the less we have incredibly stressful thoughts and really painful emotions, the more likely we're going to sleep better. Mm. And sleep is one of the key, key elements in the pain experience. If we can normalize sleep, we often can do much to knock back pain. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. It it makes me think of because I wanted to ask the question like how you know, when you're, when you're treating these women that you were talking about in this, in this clinical setting and the pain is getting increasingly more difficult as they get closer to, to that exploring that trauma, it feels almost like it's impossible for them to get there then because like the pain just keeps building and then they can never really get there. And it makes me think of, uh, I know that there's this, uh, there's this walking therapy, um, thing for, for men here that a clinic is doing here in Halifax where you go and you meet with your your therapist and you actually go for a walk with them outside. And I wonder if it's like things like I'm thinking like, Oh, that works because the stress is being reduced at the same time. Or there's like something to sort of like, you know, bring you into an environment where maybe you're not as like getting as worked up is it, would that be like a, a sort of like one technique, I guess, to, to help get to that place where you can, you know, unpack some of that, that trauma and start to work on, on healing it. That's actually really insightful, Brian, that, that that is a piece of it, that what we need to do is to some degree disrupt that alarm. OK, so um, I, again, um, our brain was developed to keep us safe and out of harm. Right. So it's a really good threat detection system. That's what it does. And we as humans are really wired to look for the threat in the environment, right? Look for the things that can cause us threat. And the brain isn't really great at distinguishing like really big threats from little, little, little threats. So if we're in the environment and we see, um, we see somebody say something really mean to us, that can be really activating and, and perceived as a threat and that sets the alarm bells. So not unlike your example you had given, taking that person out for a walk 
and allowing them to kind of be in a different atmosphere. They're kind of distracted. It's dialing down the stress most likely. And the more we can kind of dial down that stress, the more likely we are to um, to, to be able to open up to things. And, and because that initial alarm is, is turned down. And that's, a, it, had I had the knowledge I had now in working with those women back, you know, 20 years ago, I would have told them that, this is a really normal reaction to what you're experiencing. And we're really close to something that's very, very scary and may very much feel like a threat. But I'm going to ask you to tell your brain that you know that this is scary, but it's not a threat to being. This is not going to hurt me. I, I can do this. And literally knocking back the threat by talking to your brain, which sounds a little crazy, <laughs> but it is effective. It is effective just to acknowledge, okay, because the brain is just detecting something bad out there. But if you put a name on it and tell it it's okay, mm. you can knock back some of that. Just It's just really primal activation and fear. How, how effective is that? Because like when I hear you say that, I'm like, okay, cool. I could see how that would be like, maybe make the person feel like they're, they do have some control, but at the same time, I feel like that subconscious, like inner voice is so intense in those moments that like, even if you're saying it out loud, maybe it's hard to believe. Yeah. Oh, I think so too. And I, and I think, you know, we, we want to do little teeny steps and intervals because people will reveal what they're able to reveal when they're ready to reveal it, right? Mm -hmm. But we can help pave the road. And part of it is just making people aware this could be part of the process, helping people kind of breathe through it. So the more that we can all recognize when we're having a really strong, fearful reaction to something in our environment, and you know it's not something that you should be so freaked out about, and can start just kind of being mindful and kind of breathing through it and recognizing that terrifying thoughts are just terrifying thoughts. Mm -hmm. They just are. They just happen and we allow them to pass just like kind of our emotions, you know, our terrifying emotions. Okay, that's interesting. I'm really afraid. I don't need to act on it. That can pass too. So again, it's just this kind of this mindfulness, accepting way of kind of being in the moment starts to open the door so people can make progress. Again, it's, there's no magic. That has to be the single, like you've just made, uh, helped me sort of think about the like the way that I think about therapy is exactly that. Like going to therapy for me um, has given me the ability in stressful situations to sort of step back for a minute and go, okay, like how, like what are the sort of experiences that are at play here that might be like sort of making me feel this like, um, you know, inability to handle my emotions in this situation. I feel like like therapy is almost like practicing that, that sort of like step back and be more analytical about your experience. And by like repeatedly doing that, it almost gives you the opportunity in the moments where you're like having this like really intense emotional reaction to like possibly have a, a step outside of your body moment where you can be like, okay. And, and talk to yourself in that oh, way where positive, you can like calm yourself it's down. It's a positive. I mean, the thing that kind of strikes me about this um, whole conversation is, 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 is the idea that we all, we all know the vicious cycle. We all know the idea of the vicious cycle and developing an understanding that that is a two way street, that the vicious cycle can also be a, uh, well, I don't know what's the, what, what would be the colloquial term that we would use for the opposite of vicious cycle? Amazing cycle, positive cycle. Uh, I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. um, like that, those work. That, that those that 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 goes both ways, you yeah. know. And I and this is true in so many 
aspects of life. You know, if I, if I, if I stop working out, I'm, I always feel more likely to continue to not work out, which then has its other ramifications mentally and physically, which then reinforce that, which deepen the roots or deepen the trenches, which makes me more likely to continue. And when I start to break that, then I start to go in the other direction and doing that in sort of like a mental capacity. And I know like it's for you, it's with therapy for me, for me, I developed that, I developed that, um, that, uh, that sort of capacity to step back and analyze through, uh, like mindfulness work in my, in my twenties teaching and learning yoga and, and, and now in the future going to therapy too. See, see, this is, this is the thing that I see. This is the thing that Brian, Brian won't accept that you can get similar things from different locations. So Brian, well, I accept, I accept that. I just think that there is a really great tool that is out there. Yeah, Brian thinks there's a, Brian thinks there's from. a way and it's his way. And that's the way. Sure. <laughs> just, that's wait. Brian's way. And that's it's Brian's awesome. Way. And, then, and then there's Taylor's way. But it, again, we all kind of find our way differently or we don't, right. Or we don't even bother, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I, I, I love that you, you do yoga and mindfulness because I think you can, if you can step out of that being entrenched and all involved in your emotions and fears and crazy thoughts and think, oh, I have crazy thoughts and crazy emotions. That's okay. And That's it's a, it's a okay. practice. It's a practice. Like it is, it is a, it is a metaphorical muscle mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe in the brain, like a, a literal muscle, sort of in a different form, that you flex, and when you start to flex it, it gets stronger, and it becomes, uh, in 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 um, in the in the best case scenario, it becomes the default. It becomes yeah. the the it becomes the default method for tackling challenging situations. Is to step back, try to try to try to be an observer of the scenario of the circumstance, um, and not just uh, and not just somebody kind of trapped in the current of it, um, mm-hmm. and to be able to uh, to kind of to 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 guide the current yourself. Um, I'm really interested okay. in your. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said can we double back because you you yeah, said yeah. something that you really liked too when we were talking kind of breaking the the cycle and and having an amazing cycle. I wanted to pull something on that because I think that's really important that. Sometimes to break the cycle and to get ourselves on an amazing cycle, we just have to do one thing. And and as a psychologist, something we wrestle with is just getting people to take the first step. And as you said, you take a first step and then at least the next step, the next step. And um, and I, I think people are afraid to do that frequently because they feel like it's too big or where they want to go is too big and they don't know where to begin. But I think, you know, Starting the amazing cycle, if that's what you called it, is just doing one small thing. And that is so central in my book is that, you know, just one small thing and start start the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back like uh, it's kind of go, tying that back again to the um, not the not the um, psychological um, side of the impact of yoga. But um, when I was like really day to day teaching yoga and running, running a yoga studio, um, you know, you'd see, especially on the, on the male side, you'd see, uh, I mean everybody, but you saw, you saw it in a, you saw it in a particular way in the male, uh, on the male side of things where, where a guy would come in and he, he comes in when he's got all this stigma wrapped around a guy doing yoga. And this is more so, this is more so like back in the early 2010s or, or something. 
um, when it was like far less common for, for guys to be doing yoga. And you would see this stigma and just taking that step of like walking through the front door and trying it for the first time was like, was, was <laughs> like moving the boulder. And, yeah. and then, and then you saw that once they got that moving and it was like guys in particular, like women seem to be more like, like try it, put yeah. it away, try it, put it away. Guys would come in and yeah. you, you knew that from, from a, from like a business perspective, you knew that if you had a guy coming in, that if he was trying it, the odds of him staying and being a part of your yoga studio and coming to classes regularly was very high because the benefit was so obvious to them relative to what they were coming into that experience with, which was a lot of um, maybe fear, uncertainty, insecurity. And then removing that is like this massive weight off. And they go, oh my God, I love this experience. You should have seen how Taylor's uh, marketing changed uh, as he <laughs> as he learned this. It started to be like, come on in, bros. And it was like truck, <laughs> like they were putting truck commercials on TV where guys were like, yeah, like I got my Ford and it tows yeah. and I do yeah. yoga yeah. at the end of the day. Just so reinfor- reinforcing all sweet. of the yeah. stereotypical uh, male, male uh, traits. <laughs> But that um, makes it feel safe, though, too. So, yeah. well, well, you gotta do what you got to do to get people into the. <laughs> I'm I'm really interested in um, in your um, your work and your thoughts around opioid addiction and treatment. Um, obviously, this is a a <clears throat> historically has been uh, horrific and continues to be a crisis across um, North America and the world. But I, I believe that I believe the problem is 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 exacerbated in North America. Um, talk to us about that. What are your, what are your thoughts there and, and how chronic pain and treating that chronic pain sort of um, plays into that? It, it, it's heartbreaking. I, uh, I, I'm stunned by the different iterations. We're now in our fourth wave of the opioid epidemic and, and, and wave of deaths and destruction, and th- this one is fueled by um, the synthetic fentanyl, as well as the co-use with uh, stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine. And we're just seeing just another huge wave of deaths. And so it, it it's so disappointing because we keep we kind of ride this roller coaster. Okay, maybe we're past it, and it keeps growing like another beast. Um, so rightly so, we try and think of alternatives to opioids which is an important um, an important option. Where I feel a little torn is that some people with chronic pain benefit from opioid treatment. And for them not to get access to opioids is also heartbreaking. And, and hopefully that's starting to change as the CDC did roll back some of their restrictions and, and hopefully it's getting easier. But um, the piece of that that means a lot to me is um, why we got here to begin with. We got into this opiate crisis because people had untreated chronic pain. And so, oh my gosh, it was a panacea. We finally had something that was going to work for these hordes of people who could not work because of their chronic pain. Um, So that's kind of the first piece of it. And it's also disappointing that we don't have more for them. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a very large um, NIH grant right now to look at commonly effective treatments for chronic low back pain and um, consider these treatments that 
about a third of patients respond well to any one of these treatments. It, it's a medication, it's physical therapy, it's kind of an M health using kind of acupressure and, and apps or um, or using kind of a, a really great mindfulness kind of group therapy. So we're kind of looking at these treatment types and with this grant understanding who responds to what treatment. If we can do a better job of looking at the person across from us and, and really taking a personalized medicine approach and saying, Hey, I understand this, that, and the next thing about you, you, you know, you're, you're a male, this age, and this is your, your story. I think we get you in physical therapy first and follow that up with, you know, with some good um, uh, home monitoring or, or you know, uh, e-health kind of support. I think you'll do well. We don't know how to do that. So we're trying to understand that now. So we, you know, we're scurrying around trying to get better with the treatments that we have, trying to develop new treatments, but then also trying to think about what role opioids play. So the other piece I just wanted to, to share is something that we do in our clinics is when a new patient with chronic pain who's been on long-term opioid therapy arrives, we ask them, would you be open to doing an opioid experiment? And what is done is the patient can taper down with a physician's support and oversight very slowly in a way that's you know medically safe. Um, and then see what we have on the other side. So, you know, let the patient ta taper down, perhaps, you know, have some other medications and other strategies to help, you know, them through this period um, using buprenorphine or other medications to even help with the transition. And then um, see what we have. And what's so fascinating is a very large number of patients on long-term opioid therapy get past their taper, get a few weeks in and turn to the physician and say, my pain is better. I cannot believe it. How oh, is wow. my pain? better. And then not only is my pain better, but um, I don't feel so cloudy. I'm sleeping better. My emotions are back. Um, and it's remarkable. And so what we've learned about long-term opioid therapy is it changes your biology. It makes you um, experience something that we call opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is, is just a term that just means the opioids actually are making you feel more pain that it's changed how you are processing pain. That's one thing. But then they have all these side effects that are really, really hard for people. And so once we can kind of get them to the other side, and then we can do a much better job, maybe with one single medication and maybe some non-pharmacological, get them moving, exercise is heavenly, getting people's um, sleep better, getting their, um, getting if they have depression, anxiety, treating that, and then getting them leading lives that feel interesting and engaging and fun and bringing the things that make life worth living back in. Again, the theme of my book, you know, how we get better with chronic pain when we feel like our life is better. That's really, um, that's, that's, I'm really happy to hear that because, because when you, when, when you started speaking there, um, I, the, the question that was formulating in my head was going, you know, how challenging is it to contend with a pill that you mm -hmm. put in your mouth and it has this effect like mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. versus the, versus the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the types of treatment that, you know, mm -hmm. they take. You have to go, you have to talk to somebody, you have to undergo this thing. It takes time, you know, and it's got an arc. It's not, it's not a, it's not a swallow a pill and, 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 you know, get your temporary relief. Um, and I'm really happy to hear that in that explanation that you gave that it's actually, you're like, we're getting really positive, um, feedback and responses from, from that because, because of all of the other stuff that comes along with yeah. that treatment. Yeah, I, on the mark, and you know, and, and, and 
we as I know that this is probably industrial nation, but we as Americans, we love a pill. <laughs> you know, the less I have to do to take care of my health, the better. I mean, we're all guilty of it, but we all know that we really need to be partners with our bodies, right? That we need to eat well, we need to get some exercise, we need to sleep, we need to not smoke. And you know, we know that these things that we're, you know, we're not supposed to do to, to lead life well. This is so true with chronic pain too, is that, you know, it's pretty much everything that your, your grandma told you you should do for good health. You need mm-hmm. to do for good health with chronic and a, pain. And a pill, and a pill, if it doesn't come with disastrous side effects, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. <laughs> but when it comes, almost, when it comes like, with the are side effects. Are there effect, any good like pills? I mean. Well, everything, like, uh, everything has something, but like the relative, yeah. the relative side effect, you know what I mean? Like you're, 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 you've got to, every, every medication has a risk reward ratio. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and when the, when the risk is in the, in the case of opioids is oftentimes much greater than the reward, yeah. then it's a, it's a, it's something that you have to reevaluate. You know, when you're dealing with something that has a, that has a very low risk for a substantial reward, then there's a, it's a very different, it's a very different evaluation that you need to make. But, but to put like some of the, um, onus back on like the healthcare system, um, I like I, my perspective or my thoughts is that, that. Oftentimes, you know, it comes down to the the people who are prescribing the medication that end up doing this thing. They prescribe it, you know, it's effective short term, um, but mm-hmm. then they just keep these people on it because it, you know, it worked for a bit. And so like they they just keep keep doing it. Like how much of how much of this responsibility is on the system itself to like if you're going to use um, you know, opiates to use them as a, that sort of you know, maybe that tool to help with, help facilitate these more deep and long lasting treatments rather than like, you know, being the solution itself. That's the bajillion dollar question, actually, Brian. So um, physicians get very little training in pain medicine, very little, you know, we are, are, are teeny tiny in our medical school. And, you know, and here we're one of the leaders in the world in pain um, and, and pain science and, and, and pain management. And yet even our medical students just get these little teeny courses. So unfortunately, many, many physicians are kind of put out there in the world with not the tools that they need. And so a pill is easy and makes sense. And then they kind of feel stuck. And so, you know, what we're trying to do madly and fastly is develop as much support for physicians, clinicians of all types, as well as patients in the the terms of education, in terms of materials they can use. Um, uh, We have a marvelous website called Pain Guide, P-A-I-N-G-U-I-D-E. It's free painguide.com, University of Michigan. It's um, all sorts of information about pain as well as all sorts of self-management techniques. Um, so, you know, it, it is, the, the onus is on physicians too, but it is a bigger societal problem. Mm. Um, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a, uh, a just a, a fascinating conversation around chronic pain, which is just something that we have, we have just heard so much about. And Honestly, chronic pain, it it took several conversations for us on the podcast to really um start to wrap our head around around it. And 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 obviously that has to do with there being, you know, talking to several different people who have their own unique situations and their chronic pain, their roots in their chronic pain are coming from very different places. Um, um but I, I feel like this just once again, like synth- this conversation really like synthesizes that understanding. Um, and, and helps us and helps our listeners who are, no doubt are, uh, a lot of which are, are going through kind of like the same arc of understanding as we are, um, 
to synthesize it as well. So I really do. Um, I really do thank you for that. I know that we're, um, we're running, um, quite low on time and I want to respect that. Um, so I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with us today for speaking with us about chronic pain and these, these, you know, these treatment modalities and the research that you're doing, um, to further that. Um, and also uh, a congratulations and another plug on your book, Chronic Pain Reset. Um, you can get it if you're listening right now. You can get it. It came out as you're listening to this right now. It came out September 5th. It is the um, number one is number one in the category of chronic pain on Amazon right now. And um, and I know that you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you wanted to add in a little piece about where people could get it in order to support local bookstores as well. Do, if you'd like to say that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so please visit aftonhasset.com, A-F-T-O-N-H-A-S-S-E-T-T.com. You can find the book there and links to all the usual places that you can get books, but also there's a link to independent bookstores. We're huge supporters of the indie bookstores. You can link on that. If it doesn't take you directly to a bookstore, it'll let you order the book and the money goes to an independent bookstore. So it's really a marvelous, marvelous cool. opportunity. So oh. thank you guys so much for letting me talk about that and, and, and to come on your show and talk about pain and, and, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. Chronic Pain Reset, 30 days of activities, practices, and skills to help you thrive. Thank you, Afton. We love having you on the show. Thank you. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.